Hello and welcome to the Shut Your News Hole podcast. On this episode, I speak with Shonda Buchanan. Shonda is an award-winning educator, poet, and author. Her most recent work is Black Indian, a memoir. So Shonda, I'd like to start with a reading from the book, Black Indian, your memoir. Um, Would you mind doing that for us? Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm reading from chapter four. Uh, and this chapter leads into, it actually starts talking about um, when my mom and my aunt and I are actually trying to find pictures for one of my other aunts who passed, my Aunt Phyllis who passed. And um, so this is us kind of uh, me writing about it and kind of a little bit of us in the um, in action. It seems as if my mom's childhood had never happened, as if my grandfather's tight axe grip is still choking her all the way from the grave. The gaps in her memory make it seem as if she'd skipped her own childhood. But I've persisted, refusing to believe that my mother's memories have sealed themselves up like two swollen eyelids after a fight, protecting the eye from what it couldn't see next. I'm sorry, see the next punch. And here she is, her memory easing into gear, into gear like a well-oiled 10-speed bike, comfortable and safe with her little sister next to her. Boy, I used to kick that old teacher. She was mean to me. My aunt is still indignant after 50 some odd years. She was always picking on me and I was the littlest out of the whole school. And Irma picks up a picture of Frida her favorite sister who died at 13, her eyes missed over with memory. Then she drops Frida's picture a little too hastily, shoves it under the pile and picks up one of my mother. Your mama wouldn't come inside the school though, Aunt Irma crows gleefully. She hated that school, just decided one day she wasn't gonna go no more. In the largest class picture, all the non-white kids are see-through pasty, high yellow, or ruddy faces from farm labor. These terms that categorize your mulatto heritage, no matter how you got it, and depending on who said it, could be a compliment or a cuss. Look at you guys, I gawk, at their their checkered high-collared dresses and black silver buckled shoes, worn down so much in a couple of the photos, I can see where the sole was about to flip up. You can tell by their shoes who was really dirt poor. All the girls are shiny and pretty like fresh cornbread, yellowish and tan hues that growing up, I never associated with being Indian. When you're a child, you don't see color. You just are who you are, how people see you. The baby girl, the tallest boy, the best spitter, the fastest runner. But in Van Buren County, which was made up of four major cities, seven little villages really, including Madawan and Papa. When the high yellow folks, colored and free slaves started cutting down trees to erect homes in the early mid 1800s, things changed. Some of those folks, you couldn't even tell if they had one drop of black blood, they were so white looking. And that was a problem. Some white people claim not to mind the light-skinned, white-featured, free people of color living next to them, but they did if they were marrying white, then disappearing into white society, never to be black or mulatto again. So I'll stop there. I think that's a good enough portion to get into (laughs) that history piece. Yeah, it's the chapter to me highlights one thing that I've I've thought about quite a bit um, as an African-American. So I've I've had a a similar experience where I've been uh, trying to coax information out of mothers and grandparents, and they don't quite want to go down that road. Um, And I I, I never really understood why. I mean, maybe there's some hurt there, um, but... In your experience, what what do you take from that different relationship to the past that our elders seem to have as opposed to someone of uh, uh, the generation after 
the uh, baby boomers? Yeah, I think this is a, I really like the question, your question, because I do think hurt was one of the reasons that our parents and our parents' parents didn't want to share where they came from. They didn't want to share the past. They didn't want to um, uh, maybe even share stories of violence that had happened to their family members based off of um, race, raciality, mixed race, you know, Ness being a mixed race person. Um, so much could happen back then, right? So, I mean, um, I will say I know that the migration, the great migration, there were several great migrations from the South, actually, but um, for my people, we were in two, we were in two of those great migrations. Um, one after, actually before um, the 1800s is when my Staffords and my Manuals left uh, North Carolina. They were free people of color identifying as, um, well, back then you could say free people of color, but also Indian and Black. And they got on the migration trail, Kings Highway, the Appalachian Trail. And went first to Tennessee, Kentucky. Uh, some went to Ohio, and then others landed in in Indiana. In Indiana, they started some of the first free people of color um, settlements. So my Roberts, my Manuals, my Staffords, my Matthews are all on record as you know starting some of those first settlements. Even though they kind of started a couple in, you know, Tennessee and Indiana, they're really known. I'm sorry, Tennessee and Kentucky, they're really known for Indiana. So the hurt comes when they had to basically leave the land or sell their land because one, they were either being ostracized, they were being treated as second class citizens, um, even though if they owned land, they could vote. Because that was a precept, you know, before um, before the uh, chattel slavery just kind of um, latched on to, uh, in, you know, southern and southeast, um, you know, legislature and plantations. But you know, if you were a free per- person of color, or if you were a, a, a slave who had bought yourself out of slavery, because they have to follow federal guidelines, right? So if you bought yourself out of slavery, then you could own land. And if you bought yourself out, worked hard enough, then you can buy your other people out of slavery. So then you you had to kind of own your family members. And like, that's a hurtful memory right there. So for my people, it was like, you know what? We're, we're going to pick up and we're going to move and we'll start this, you know, settlement here. And, but at the same time, you, you, you know, for those who were proud of it, my Roberts kept that history and the heritage, but the others who didn't quite know or who, who weren't too proud of it were my Staffords, my grandfather's people. And so um, when I started doing my research, I found that my um, grandfather's father's father was, again, one of the first free people of color folks to settle in uh, Michigan, which is where I was born and raised, Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um but then something happened in that schism. And so this is where my book really kind of picks up and talks about what I'm talking about in, in, in Black Indian in my memoir is how the memory of trauma and how the, um, the memory of the past starts to seep into your DNA. And so then you start to enact like this, like a, a, a cycle of violence. So you just start to um, you, you know, one, you could say, you know, maybe you are um, emotionally abusing your wife or physically abusing your kids. Maybe you become an alcoholic. Uh, maybe you're distant and maybe you just don't want to talk. Maybe you withhold love, you know, from your family. And for me, I just started to, in the asking of questions of finally getting answers or or hearing what my older brothers and sisters and my aunts were saying, I started to connect the chain of hurt. I started to connect some feelings that I had about why did my mother show me more love or show us more love as kids to how her father physically abused her to how his father physically and emotionally abused him. I mean, it just became this legacy of um, 
what I saw was addiction eventually and abuse. So I think um, for 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 African Americans, the the trauma the 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 encoded um, trauma and the the diaspora um, uh, trauma, the Middle Passage trauma, you know, really just became um, this like a um, like the duality, like the the cloud over us, like the ominous cloud over us. And then the thing we had to survive, like the resilience that we had to keep in our character and maintain, right? Um, so on the American Indian side, you know, what we are fighting on, on that side is 500 years of transgression, you know, from the first uh, Spanish you know, fleet that came over to Haiti and then from Haiti to, um, you know, to the other islands and then from the islands to Central America and then, you know, South and North America. And then just the, you know, the movement of, of black, of black bodies and then also indigenous bodies, um, as, as slaves. So, um, for indigenous people, uh, they were starting to, 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 to be enslaved. And then when the, uh, when the colonizers, the Brits and the Dutch and the French and, um, Portuguese came to the new world, Jamestown, um, you know, they, first it was like, Hey, you know, we've got people who can teach us how to eat, how to hunt, et cetera. And then this is their land. And then they said, well, you know, let's, let's try to trade. Let's try to get some of this land. And then it was like, they've got too much land that they're not even using and farming. So how about, you know, we just trade with them or if they refuse to trade or if there was a misunderstanding, then they established the the um, the colonizers. That's what we'll call them. They started establishing these laws by which the American Indians weren't trying to live or they were trying to live. But then they continually got um uh, what's that old word? Uh, the wool pulled over their eyes, that old phrase. Mm. So, I mean, hurt, you know, here again, you have like, you know, history kind of repeating itself where, um, you know, if you have the colonizers taking their land uh, uh, on the U.S. census, which started in 1790, um, for a period of time, the first 20 years of the census, I guess that would be the first two, maybe three cycles of the census you could say that Indians were on the census. So there were slaves, there were whites, uh, and then there were Indians. But then the, from, I think it was from 1820 to maybe 1840, maybe 1850, in some states, probably more, but you erased the word Indian and you called them other. And when I started looking at some of those, um, some of the state census books, like the huge old books, you know, and I was like, who are these others? Who are these others? And then I realized, I was like, oh, the others are the Tuscarora, the Rappahannock, the Monacan, the um, Powhatan nations, you know, Pocahontas's people who had been othered and they had been erased. Uh, and we also call that, you know, of course, um, um, paper genocide. So hurt, right? So coming back to the present, you know, coming back to our, our family, you know, coming back to, I'm 51. Uh, I was born in 1968. So coming back to my mom and coming back to my grandfather and grandmother, all I saw was um, a mother who had survived physical abuse of her husband and her father, um, a mother who had seven kids and, you know, kind of barely knew how to raise kids herself. She was just kind of always stuck in a 15 year old, um, kind of parental mode. It was, you know, but she did the best she could, you know, I don't blame my mom at all for how we were raised. Um, uh, I, I blame history, <laughs> you know, I blame I blame um, miscegenation, uh, anti-miscegenation laws. I blame um, slavery and, uh, you know, Indian removal, uh, the Trail of Tears. Uh, I think that we are the grandchildren, um, you and I are the grandchildren of, and great-grandchildren of those kinds of things that have happened to us. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think that when you That's a lot of when, history, when, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of history there. Yeah. Well, when when someone experiences trauma, I think that there is there's a luxury in remembering. So for the people who have experienced trauma, they seek protection in the forgetting. That makes sense. I agree absolutely. But the problem with the protection of forget- forgetting is that it's like it's like shooting memories with the with the with the shotgun. There's not much precision. Mm-hmm. So you not only lose the things that hurt, but you lose some of the things that didn't hurt, mm-hmm. you know? So you 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 end up with this kind of Swiss cheese uh uh personal history or family history that you need to kind of fill the gaps on, which is part of what I think you you were attempting to do with your family. Uh, and and the, the book is a, is a memoir. Yes. But it's also a memoir of your family. It's not just, it's not just about your individual experience. So I think it's a memoir for people, for people of color too, like mixed bloods. I call, I call mixed bloods, like the, the, the true tapestry of America, because um, it, I think it is the, I think my book is my family memoir, but it's also like the country's memoir, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As as I was reading it, there were so many things that I could relate to, so many things that I I have similar experiences of in within my own family. There 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 were always tons of of kind of scattershot stories about our connection to the Choctaw or the Cherokee. Because I'm originally from Mississippi. Oh, yeah. Um, what part? Uh, the central part near Vicksburg. Okay, because my dad is uh, Oklahoma, Mississippi. And so he says we're Choctaw from that side. And when I did my research, they were saying that the um, the indigenous, mixed indigenous blood in the Ch- in the Oklahoma area were actually um, Chickasaw. But mm. my oral history is Choctaw until I find a Chickasaw, you know, connection with Choctaw. So that's so interesting about you know your people's history too. Well, and it's it's hard to it's, uh, it's hard to unearth that information that passed because I've done some family history and the farthest I could go back with you know just a, an account with um, uh, was it um, ancestry dot com the farthest I could go back was you know just after the Civil War. Uh, but my my sister did a a DNA test and there was some native ancestry ancestry there among some other things that I wasn't aware of but uh it's it's really difficult when you have that kind of patchwork family history to kind of to kind of you know remake that quilt you know you know what I'm saying I really do it's interesting because that is the um that is the the genesis, or I guess the, um, the the research question is what we say in the academy. I'm a professor. I've been a, um, a, u- a university level professor for gosh, going on 19 years now. And so my research question was, what are we? Right? It was like, what what are we? And so it became for me part journey, part game, part treasure hunt um, to to put, you know, put those pieces together in a, uh, in an order, in a, you know, kind of a consecutive order, uh, a linear order where I could see, um, uh, see the line, you know, again, and see the lineage. So, um, and I'm actually, it's interesting because I'm actually going to teach a genealogy, like a Zoom genealogy class, um, like a two, two hour uh, class uh, in May. Because I want to tell and show people the documents that I used, you know, just tell them where I went to find that Black Indian connection. Um, so, but I, um, you know, for the purposes of the interview, I, uh, I just, I, I just kept digging and digging and digging and pulling and pulling together and pulling together and asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. I mean, for years, this book really took twenty years. Um, to pull together, I would say 10 years in the actual writing and editing process, only because, you know, I was a single mom 
So I was raising my daughter too, as I was writing and working and going to school and, you know, getting my, my English degrees and, and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, it, it was a journey, you know, and this is, this book is the kind of work that someone would do for a PhD, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? right? And um, because of all the texts that I accessed, uh, because of all the trips that I took to 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 interview people, to talk to people, um, you know, just, uh, just it was a it was a lot of work, but it was a labor of love. It definitely was. It can be done, and it can be done. It just it will take a while. Right. I want to circle back to the idea you mentioned earlier about the the trauma, trauma and pain kind of getting in your bones and breeding this, uh, I don't want to call it dysfunction, but I lack a better word, so we'll go with dysfunction. And how these two these two things kind of play off of one another. Uh, so you 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 experience the pain, the trauma, and then it becomes a part of you, and you end up inflicting it. Mm-hmm. And m- much of the book kind of examines some of that within your your own family members. But the the the, the point that interests me the most about that. Was you you talked about when you left Michigan after your um, your aunt's funeral, and you went back to L.A. And that experience of being back home, where that that trauma is still real, kind of took a took a bit of a toll on you. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I really didn't even know what the word dysfunction meant until I was thirty. <laughs> Really, um, even though I'd been in college and you know studying Shakespeare and you know reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Alice Walker, and E.E. E. Cummings, I mean, just you know, so but that word I just never applied it to us because for for us really it was just like oh this is how we grew up you know I it took a while for me to even understand that I am a child who survived a violent childhood. Like I, (laughs) I had, you know, um, there were so many fights and just like, it was just a, it was a lullaby, you know, and it was familiar. And, um, and, and I really started kind of trying to write about um, even as a young person, I, I started writing family poems and poems of selfhood, poems to reclaim my strength as a young girl moving into womanhood. I mean, I really just kind of use language as a way to mend the dysfunction and to confront and name the dysfunction. And maybe it goes the other way, but name and confront and then to break the chain and break the cycle of dysfunction for myself. Um, and for my daughter, um, that was really, really important in, in the writing of this book. And even, um, even I could see in some of the chapters that I would, as I was writing, I was processing, but I was also trying to write towards, um, how to write myself out of this, out of this dysfunction, out of this whole, um, out of the ominous, you know, sensibility, um, even as I, um, even as I saw where it came from, um, I mean, but you know, it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't always work. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. Uh, I never suffered from, I was never addicted to drugs. I was never physically abused, um, in, in like a permanent physically abusive relationship. I had one, um, incident, one, like, like a, it was a 30 second incident with an ex-boyfriend, and it was immediately like an immediate moment of this is the thing you said you would never do. Like you grew up seeing your women, you know, fighting with their men. And this is the thing you said you would never do. And um, that was like a watershed moment, you know, for me. So, um, yeah. So, so, but the thing that did happen for me in my, um, and I'm going to talk more, really more about this in my second memoir. I'm working on a second memoir. <laughs> yes, there's more to it. 
But um, <laughs> my first marriage, it was emotionally abusive. And, um, and, and so that is something that I realized I, um, I allowed because it was familiar and I didn't recognize because it was familiar until I got out of it, until I knew I, I needed to get out. And it was such a short, short marriage. Sometimes I say it doesn't even count, but it really counted. <laughs> um, and then in my second marriage, uh, something, it was a little different where I, it was like, I, the, the other thing about an abusive person is the codependency or a person who experienced abuse is codependency. And so I realized that, you know, I'd raised my daughter, but I was still in my mind trying to take care of things and people. And so I, my second husband, he needed care. And I saw that there were some dysfunction, like things that in his past, his baggage, you know, that was dysfunctional. But then I could, I could give care, you know, and to the best of my ability. The problem with that is anyone who has experienced, anyone who has fallen in love with someone who um, comes from a dysfunctional background, at some point they will they recognize it and deal with it or they don't recognize the dysfunction the inherited dysfunction and then they act it out in the marriage and um i am not a marriage counselor i am just someone who experienced <laughs> it okay but i can but i've seen that and just in talking to my my friends you know my women friends and my my therapist because i did go to therapy um uh uh for a year and so, but I could see those certain things just kind of acting themselves out. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the dysfunction is real. I'm older now. And so in my communities, um, even in the African community and the American Indian community, I'm, I've done many, many ceremonies. Um, I have participated in um, some really uh, important ways of, uh, of um, prayer and sacrifice. And now I'm considered an elder because I have a grandson. So I've, I've crossed over into elderhood. But I'm going to tell you, it's been really interesting. Um, and I know I'm young. I mean, I'm 51. You don't think of, you know, elder elders, like until like they're 60 and 70 years old. But um but, you know, here, here I am with all of this experience and having, having done the things that I've done and, 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 um, reflecting on these kinds of things. And then I have now moved into the sharing, uh, and then also moved into the hopefully healing, um, part of my life. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to me, the idea of writing yourself out of dysfunction, because for me, when I, when I, when I left home and got physic, physical distance between me and some of the dysfunction in the, in the larger family, my, my, my experience of that was using forgetting to, to protect yourself. So mm -hmm. I, I got an English degree as well. So if you're, you've got, you know, a dozen books to read, there's no place for dysfunction. You need to, you need uh, to do the work. Yeah. So part, part of my personal history is a little bit Swiss cheese because I, I, I chose to use the mode, the method that my ancestors used, which is you compartmentalize these things. Yep. That thing exactly. happened, doesn't exist. And, and when as you a go black back, man, too. I mean, that's a whole nother level of compartmentalization. Well, yeah. <laughs> well and, and like you said, with your daughter, you're you're trying to create an environment, a home that that doesn't have that dysfunction, so you don't pass, keep passing that along the generations. So, while in 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 many ways, I've created this this space where dysfunction doesn't exist, I've lost some of that history that I now can't pass on because quite frankly, I don't remember it. You know? What well, can I ask what you mean by you don't remember? What do you not remember? I'm just curious. That's a, that's a really interesting. Well, 
Well, just, uh, you know, like the, the particulars of say the, you know, the alcoholism, the, ah. you know, maybe, maybe there's brandishing of guns. Like ah. I, I remember the feeling. Yeah. I don't remember the particular incidents. And if you asked me to write it down, you know, in this linear fashion, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. But I know it's in there because I can, I still feel the emotions of it. I just don't have the recollections. That is so fascinating to me. And I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, there was a moment when I was writing that um, for until I was like 19, I had suppressed being sexually abused by a step uncle, which is in the book as well. And I'd repressed it. Right. Um, but I think for me, because there were some moments that were uh, formative in like um, the violence was was along like developed alongside of a beautiful moment, and so because I was impressed by like a beautiful moment, for example, um, so we spent a, a couple of weeks at one of my uh, my grandfather. Well, actually, he was my so my um, my aunt is I have an aunt who's the same age as me, um, and my mom married there brother but we called ourselves like uh cousins kind of you know and like aunt cousins that kind of a thing anyway it's so country <laughs> but so we spent yeah. a couple of weeks out there with them we and it was fun so much fun it was the summer and so we're coming home and we've got all these memories of just having fun and we come back uh from their house driving back to kalamazoo we pull up to kalamazoo i'm, I'm sorry pull up to our, our house in kalamazoo and we see that the house has been broken into. And then we discover it was broken into by one of my mom's ex-boyfriends who used to abuse her. So like the beauty it happens alongside the, um, the violence. And so that's why I remember it. But I can absolutely understand how certain things you just don't even want to have in your data bank. You know what I mean? And I totally understand um, unless you're in a workshop where you're trying to recover something that you might not remember it. Right. Yeah. It saves us, right? Uh, non-memory protects us, <laughs> you know, non-memory allows us to function, in a in a, you know, um, sane way in society. So people, you know, um, don't treat you differently. Um, and then also as people of color where we know, um, our history in this country, you know, it, uh, a part of that is the civil rights movement and Jim Crow South and, mm-hmm. um, you know, smallpox blankets and, you know, just such a, um, a parade and a, and a legacy of um, purposeful, um, just kind of, um, you know, onslaught of, of inequality and, um, you know, trying to rid uh, 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 themselves of us, so so, so right. we've got that that part of it too. You know that historical, um, you know, dysfunction and trauma at the same time. So well, we're it's, fighting. It's our, the purpose. Oh, go ahead. Wait, it's the it's the dysfunction of your personal family, but also the dysfunction of the American family. Yep, exactly. So that that same trauma and pain you experience with, you know, family members. You're, you're getting it from the larger society, which should be, you know, like family, but isn't. Yeah. I think I'm, I write towards like trying to come back to the human family. I, um, I wrote, I'm writing poems of hope now because of, you know, where we are with COVID. We're shuttered in. We know that in, in America, you know, the, the, gosh, the quoted number of the possible deaths, you know, by the, time, you know, that this quote unquote ends, I guess it would be mid-May. It's like 100,000 to 240,000 possibly like dead. That's our trajectory. So like, how do you write in the time of COVID? You know, how do you, how do you write in this time where, um, you know, uh, 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 the breathing can kill you? (laughs) How do you do that? So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to write poems of hope and I'm trying to connect us you know, to that human agency piece, even as I recognize that, that there are still 
um, uh, a purposeful inequality and imagined inequality and um, uh, uh, economic disparities, you know, that, that people of color and women, you know, particularly suffer in this country. Right. It's, it's particularly, particularly um, bizarre yeah. that like if, if you're, I haven't physically touched anyone outside of my home mm. in almost a month. Yeah. And my neighbor, I was out back talking with him yesterday and you know, you have this human impulse to reach out, shake a hand, yes. maybe, maybe hug, and you're fighting it. You're having this conversation. You're fighting these natural impulses. It's so bizarre. Well, I went to a conference in San Antonio. Uh, what was it? Mm, the first weekend of March, I think it was. <laughs> and um, they were going to cancel the conference because of um, coronavirus. It was known as coronavirus then. And, um, and I said, well, I'm going to go cause I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm a little hypochondriac anyway. So I'll always use the hand sanitizer. And so when we got there, pe- you know, my friends, like a lot of my Los Angeles friends had, you know, writers had, had come to the conference. And so and I was like, Hey, you know, and they were like, Oh, we're not supposed to. And I was like, but you're from LA. I know you. So th- I would hug the LA people. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and then, and when I got home, I just, and, and I just like, uh, everything just started to snowball and I felt so bad. Like I felt irresponsible. I felt, um, that I had, like, I lacked accountability in my own, um, ability at once trying to connect and to show love. And at the same time, not showing enough self-restraint, not to hug them because they might not have felt comfortable themselves or, or, you know, we could be doing, we could be passing on a germ that we didn't even know we had. Exactly. So love love could be dangerous. Love can be dangerous. Isn't that literally crazy? Be, yes. It can physically be dangerous and not in the way we usually think about it. Yeah. We'll be right back after a short break. Back to back to the book. There's, there's one other part of it that I kind of wanted to discuss with you around identity. Um there's a there's a part in the book where you talk about being in first grade and starting to get this understanding of who you are in terms of your your heritage, your racial makeup. And you have you're having this conversation with your mother and she says, you know, you know you have Indian in you, right? Oh yeah. Do and you she, want to read that section? <laughs> if you would, please. Okay, this is, I'll just read um, like a couple of pieces of it. So it's on 118. Mama, we got Indian in us. I had to be about six or seven years old. I was scratching her head for a quarter, one of my Saturday morning chores, while the rest of the kids who'd finished their chores watched White Tarzan find Jane in Hollywood's black exploitation Africa. My brother launched himself from the orange shag carpet and tried out his Tarzan scream making my mother's shoulders hunch up. Tyrone, shut the hell up, she snapped, then relaxed more deeply into her lazy boy to the tickle of my fingers in her hair. Yeah, I think it's Blackfoot. No, maybe Cherokee. Everybody said Cherokee, I learned later on. We got some white in us. I had never seen proof of the Indian blood or white ancestors except pictures that showed a range of colors from off-white Great Grandma Manuel. Grabbing my wrist, Mama moved my hand to a spot I'd missed. Yep, you got some French, some German, some Indian, some white, and a little itty bit of black. Uh Uh-oh, what did I tell my friends? According to her, though my daddy was blacker than the misrepresented Africans on Tarzan, I was a mutt, the least of which was black. I kept quiet, but I was confused. Did black people not want to be black? Did blacks hate themselves as much as it seemed my great aunt Catherine hated them? I didn't know at the time that Catherine's father, George Thomas Manuel, had been disowned by his white family because he listed his race as white. And his father had married a mulatto woman, my great grandma, Helen Curtis Manuel. Oddly, though, 
George Thomas Manuel's father and uncle, Peter and Daniel Manuel, fought with the colored troops in the Civil War. It only took two generations to leave blackness and Indianness behind. Is that why black was last on mama's list? While I was consistently ordered to mark black on all the forms and boxes I filled out at school in the doctor's office, I certainly wasn't told to check white, and there were no slots for half white or half Indian. And my birth certificate, race, black. My mother, my family, culture, good times, black. Not Brady Bunch, and definitely not John Wayne's Indians. We didn't have one eagle feather between us. After I loosened that bit of family history from my mother's scalp, I was able to boast to my classmates that my Aunt Catherine and my whole family was Indian and Black. I kept the French-German white part to myself because I did not know what to do with it. Really, I thought, how much did that matter if they couldn't see it in me, if I couldn't see it in me? Instinctively, with a kid's reasoning, I knew I had to choose something to form my identity. White wasn't my identity. I was nowhere near white. But people said my hair was that good Indian hair. I saw myself and my mother and my aunts who looked Indian. That was enough for me. I was supposed to be the tragic mulatto, but no one told me that. <laughs> that that really hit home for me when I read it. Um, it made me remember something I hadn't thought about probably in two decades. But when when I was in high school, I bought this this skin bleaching cream. Oh my God, you did not. I did. And wow. every every morning and evening I would apply a little bit and kind of hide try to hide it from everyone else in the house. Because I grew up in the late seventies and eighties and it was, this is before Denzel Washington. So being dark skinned wasn't cool yet. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And all it really did for me was irritate the hell out of my skin. And I, I had to, I tossed it out because my, my skin was starting to burn. Where did you get it um, from though? Where'd you buy it? <laughs> you just, you could, you could buy it in what, like most at that time, a lot of stores that sold, it, it wasn't really marketed as skin bleaching cream. It was like they marketed it as like blemish removal. But, oh yeah, you know, okay, we, okay. We we know what it's for. It's it's it's, it's right next to the uh, all the other black products. We know what it's for. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought about that, and I also thought about in in middle school. I was dating this girl, and she was what they used to call blue black. Oh yeah, and and I started getting. All of my my female friends coming like pulling me aside and saying, "Hey, what are you doing? You can do better than her." Wow! And I was like, "What's what's 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 wrong with Stephanie?" And they they never quite explicitly said it, but I started to put two and two together, and I was like, "They think she's too dark for me." Wow! Interesting. And I was like, "That's crazy, right?" Mm, that is so. No, I mean that's what we that's another inheritance of of the trauma of the middle passage of miscegenation anti-miscegenation laws, you know, we were taught that the darker skin African Americans were um what did what did Spike Lee say in his movie The Boogaboos and you know um yeah. you know that fight between the light skin, you know, uh uh sores and the dark skin sorority sisters. So like Yeah. We're taught that, but it was purposeful with the slave masters. You know, it was like, we will treat the darker skinned ones, you know, less than they eat, you know, eat the least. They live in the worst uh, uh, conditions. Um, They work the fields longer. The light skinned ones feel more comfortable to us because they are our kids or, you know, they're they're half breeds. So they get to work in that, you know, the Negro uh, house Negro versus the field Negro. So that kind of mentality is something that we've grown up with. I totally understand, you know, how um, the blue black then in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s was ostracized. Um, Even in the black, you know, Panther movement, black power movement, you've got beautiful Angela Davis light skin. You've got, um, oh, what is the other sister's name? Um, I forget her name. But all those, you know, most of them, most of them were these beautiful light skin you know, gross. None of the dark skinned ones wanted to be in the Black Panthers because that was black, you know? <laughs> so, 
Uh, or if they or if they, or if but, they were, but, they certainly want to be put. They, they certainly weren't going to be put out front. They weren't going to be put out front. Uh uh-uh, uh. No 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 no. But I will say now, I'm so happy and grateful that um, the movement of beautiful blackness. Right. I mean, like literally, we we are now in a phase where the dark 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 you know um, uh, sisters Africans African Americans are being profile their models um you know they're on covers of magazines you know the the um with the movie black panther oh my gosh um just such a resurgence of like you know how how dark and how blackness is like truly um magical and beautiful black girl magic right hashtag black girl magic but i will say um i know uh, and i write about this in the book too i know i am black but I know I'm mixed as well. And I'm the, and, I'm, and I try to explain this to people. It's like, you know, I'm not trying to take any way, anything away from anybody who says they're 100, 100% black. I, you know, I'm like down. I am Africa. I embody Africa. But at the same time, I'm not going to deny that ancestry. You know, the, the DNA says this. But, mm-hmm. but what have I grown up knowing? I've grown up knowing that I was this. I made specific decisions based off of, you know, what I saw, um, based off of my research. Um, you know, I, I get to based off of the ceremonies that I decided to participate in. Um, anyone can decide to do that. You can move back to Africa and you can call yourself African and you can never set foot in America again. And you can be whatever you want to be down. I'm down with that. But I get to decide, you know, I get to say history has given me this. My family has given me this. Now I write this for myself and for anyone else who wants to hear it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's that. The skin bleaching thing is interesting. That's the second <laughs> time I heard that, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, probably not my greatest moment, but, um, you know, four or five hundred years of, of oppression and, and mistreatment, you know, it, it manifests in ways that you don't always see coming. You know, um, African-Americans are not the only ones who live with the history of the trauma of the Middle Passage. Um, uh, of course, Central and South America, you know, you've got uh, Cuba and Bahia, you know, Brazil. But Africans themselves, you know, um, they suffer from uh, a colonized mind. They suffer from um, like the ripping away of their uh, their children, you know. And um, but at the same time, it's such an interesting duality of um, nationalism. And then uh, for a long time before Ghana apologized for selling their own into slavery. And um, I don't think Cote d'Ivoire apologized or Senegal, Senegalese apologized. But there was the sense of pride of being African and also the sense of um, forgetting those who had who had um, crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And so I really think that. um that we have got as African Americans and Africans, and a lot of blacks are moving, you know, not a lot, but, you know, black people are starting to think about moving back to Africa or having a second home in Africa. Um, Ludacris and Samuel Jackson actually got uh, Gabon dual citizenship. So they're technically African American and Gabonese. Um, you know, people are moving back to Tanzania and to Ghana and you know, you know, and rightfully so, because you just want to see black people all. I mean, when I went to Senegal, it was like, oh, my God, this is so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. But at the same time, they know you are African-American. Like they know that uh, in, in some places uh, I had a friend who went back to Malawi and they called him white. He was black in America. He'd be black. But they were like that white man over there because you're an American because, <laughs> you know, so that becomes a whole like national identity that a lot of us, until we go there um, and until we see what Africa, what a what one of those countries is like, we don't we don't always think about ourselves as as Americans 
from the perspective of those who are not from here. That's a whole different um, um, conversation and identity, you know, to, uh, um, yeah, that's a whole different perspective. Um, Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the, the, the colorism and the racism I've, I haven't been to Africa, but I've been to uh, Mexico, Dominican Republic, places like that. And it struck me, like I went to Mexico when I was 19 to study Spanish. And I immediately noticed the darker you were, the worse off you lived. Absolutely. And so I have this, I have, I identify but this group of people, some of which have African ancestry or it maybe is African and, and indigenous, but I identify with these people, but the Mexicans see me as American mm-hmm. and not related to these people. Yep. You know, like there's no connection between how they treat them and how they treat me. It was really bizarre. And I, I remember most of the students at the school were white. And they were treating it like it was a vacation. And, you know, I had my fun, but there was a lot of sadness for me in that trip. Just there were places I just didn't go mm-hmm. because it, it it made me feel so bad to just to be there. Wow. And wow. then I saw it in the Dominican Republic also where the some of the people who were servants, they, they were the darkest people yep. and yep. they were not living very well. And I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here, you know, as a tourist thinking, what am I, what am I doing? What what am I, what am I here for? Yeah. I saw that in the DR when I went, I saw it in Mexico. I know in Mexico, um, they've got a really, uh, uh, yes. So Southern Mexicans, the ones who are darker, uh, closer to the equator, I think they say, you know, the darker skin ones are definitely treated, um, as second class, third class citizens, um, and it's also interesting because you know that they they those are the ones connected they they have the indigenous connection mm-hmm. and then they also have the African connection, uh, not the Spaniard connection, right? Right. right. <laughs> so, um, I had a friend who would go down to what he called Black Mexican villages, and um, there was like the Yanga. The Yanga Yanga is one of the freedom fighters and an African who settled in Mexico. And so you can actually look up Yanga, Yanga, Mexico, Y-A-N-G-A. There's also like an MLK, a Martin Luther King school in, um, I think it's uh, Southern Mexico as well, because those are the black Indian, black, you know, black Mexicans, rather not black, black Indian Mexicans. Right. So, yeah, um, the, the color disparity, colorism is definitely an issue. I think also just kind of worldwide. I really think that that is the 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 curse of the of colonization. Um, whereas uh, the and Westernization, you know, particularly when um, everything that is uh, darker of a darker hue or black or the blackest, you know, blacker that um, uh, the darker that you get, um, that that is quote unquote bad. And I have to say because I am a literary person who um, I've experienced it in my life personally and in my family in terms of colorism, but as a literary person, as someone who studied literature and writers who have tackled colorism as a subject. um, So what Toni Morrison calls this is um, whiteness and the literary imagination. And in her, one of her seminal works, that book, white, uh, um, um, playing in the dark, whiteness and a liter- literary imagination. She talks about how white writers in the 1800s, uh, you know, late late 17, early 1800s, wrote about people of color in a way that showed them as fearful, savage, dark, ominous, dangerous, right? And that became a part of our imagination. And because that became a part of our imagination and they were publishing this, this in books like Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness and Moby Dick's, um, you know, uh, uh, Herman Melville and Moby Dick, like we started, 
we, I say we readers or white readers started thinking and, and writing uh, uh, and paying attention to things in a different way. So it was enculturation in those books. And so here we are, you know, in 2020, and but we're still suffering from the imagination. We're still um, looking at our brethren, um, the darker skinned ones, in a way that movies and books have taught us to look down on darker skinned people until you realize we are connected by blood and by, by land and by ethnicity. No, I don't have any, like, I don't know who my African ancestors are yet. And that's another part of my, my, um, the second book. I don't know who they are, but I know I'm African. I can't deny that. <laughs> I can't deny the scene. Right. So, yeah. Um, and that's all of our work. I think that is that's our work to do. It's our right, actually, uh, and it's and it's a calling. I think to find those ancestors and to find, you know, your ancestry. Um, and it's interesting because in that my book of poetry, "Who's Afraid of Black Indians?" I'm always kind of writing about that duality, right? I'm writing about um, uh, correct the history books, you know, um, uh, uh, pay attention. Um, uh, you know, teach your kids, you know, the, the truth that you can find if you search for it. Right. So we're, we're running a bit long, but I do want to, I want to respect your time. Um, we are in the middle of National Poetry Month and you are a poet. So I would love it if you would give us a, a, a reading of, of one of your pieces. Sure, sure, sure. I'll, I'll actually end with a poem. Uh, it's called Five Civilized Tribes. And um, another piece in our, in history that people don't think about is how, um, how American Indians owned slaves. Uh, they owned slaves um, in the 1800s because they wanted to uh, assimilate. Um, they wanted to make white slave masters feel comfortable in living next to them. Uh, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, Seminole, and the um, the Creek owned slaves. And um, so I wanted to kind of put that in a poem. And it's actually going to be, uh, I'm talking a little bit about this in my novel um, that I'm editing as well. So Five Civilized Tribes. Poets, correct the history books. Those tribes that held my sable-palmed mothers by our throats with five fingers given to them by Andrew Jackson, five hands soiled by the myth of a wild west, five legs of bullets, straw and pine, no feathers or horses, no buffalo heart, five very different notions of smoke and lodge and breeding than they began with before the great walk. Creek, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee, Seminole, over 60,000 forced into an Oklahoma shoebox, 4,000 crumbling on the way. How many were we, Black and Indian? their slaves, their lovers, their wives, their half-breed children, their slaves. We, cassava heartbreak, singing to a wolf moon. We, deranged fallen seed, corn husks and silt. They all look the same to us. We all look the same. If this is civilized, let us be the savages. If these are my cousins, my brothers, walking over my grave, I'll be the barbarian. Oh, that's so <clears throat> that's so great. <laughs> Thank you. Every time I read that poem, I just wonder what you know some of the full blood um, Indians would think, or you know. Um, you know, what they, you know, are they like, is she, you know, what's her history like? And, you know, I wonder how, I haven't even asked any 
of the, you know, my, my brother and my American Indian brother and like how they feel about being a, a part of the five civilized tribes, you know, those who own slaves. Uh, so, so this book, Who's Afraid of Black Indians? Um, I actually have hard copies. If anyone is interested in buying them, they can contact me at Shonda Buchanan at gmail.com. Um, also, my website is shondabuchanan.com, and it's available on Amazon digitally. And then uh, my memoir, Black Indian, is available um, hard copy and digitally on Amazon. And I'm working on audiobooks for both of these. Oh, nice. And, and we'll have a link on the show notes for uh, your website and, and where people can uh, find your work. Okay, fantastic. I'm actually... That that piece of information about the the native tribes owning slaves, I had no idea about that part of the history. Yeah, none. Oh yeah, I was I was I was floored. Mm-hmm. 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 It's not something they teach us in history books. Um, I've kind of set my. I keep saying this, and maybe this is the thing that I have to do, but I have to write a chapter about Black Indians, or or um pull together or pull one of my chapters out of my book and start submitting it to like the Norton anthology and, you know, St. Martin's, you know, just the, the, the books that our college students and our high school students are reading. Like no one talks about the black Indian people. Um, no, they don't know about, um, the slaves. Uh, folks don't think about Crispus Attucks who the first man to die in the revolutionary war was black Indian. Um, you know, I mean, there's just so much history with regards to, you know, the mixed blood that that we don't know. So I'm glad to have um, <laughs> given you <laughs> some of, um, you know, just a little bit of what what my scholarship is, you know, what what I what I actually teach and love, love talking about and bringing my ancestors, you know, to the forefront. Well, I'm I'm definitely going to look into it more because I, I like I said I, I I had no idea. But one last question: You apologize in the author's note. Yeah. Is is that why you you felt the need to put the apology in because you bring up these uh, kind of difficult uh, issues? Um, it's a it's a traditional. So I apologize because. Um, that's a part of the tradition, American Indian way. So mm. uh, what we say is um, before we speak, sometimes uh, we'll say, uh, I'd like to share a story uh, or I'd like to share a song. And I apologize if this isn't the way you learned it. If this is the way that I learned it. I'm not trying to offend anyone. Uh, I'm just, you know, going to share this in the way that my teacher taught me or my family taught me. Um, and this is how, this is how it goes. And then they'll start saying their story or they'll start singing a song, you know, um, you know, so that's the beginning of a Shumash children's honoring song that I learned in, um, from a, a gentleman in Los Padres National Forest in California, but there are some, so I say children's honoring song because that's the way I learned it. And then other people will say, no, that's a, uh, that's an Eagle song or, you know, and so, but the way I learned it, it's a Chumash children's honoring song. So that's how I say it. And so, so yeah, I apologize like that because I wanted to maintain the tradition from the beginning to the end. Uh, I wanted to be respectful of um, of all the people who would read this book, um, and particularly those who who practice tradition, you know, who, traditionalists, uh, and then you know, uh, folks who are African Americans who um, get mad at people when we claim our other ethnicities and our other you know races. And I just want to say, hey, this is my story. This is one person's story. It's not your story. You can write your own book. <laughs> right. You know, you can That's, do your, you know, you should write your own book. This is just one book in the thousands and millions of stories. That's fascinating. You, you keep educating me. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad. I'm, I'm so glad, you know. And uh, hey, anytime you get to Los Angeles, you're welcome to come to a sweat lodge. 
<laughs> I would I would love to. Yeah. Although I have a history of passing out when I get too hot, but oh no, I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you gonna your wife based? Where are you guys based? <laughs> I'm sorry. Where are you guys based? You and your wife? Uh, we live in Chicago. Oh, Chi Town. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, not quite as warm here, but you know, it's it's a nice place to be. Yeah, you'll totally pass out in a sweat lodge, but you'll wake up. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be easy. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, Shonda, it's been so entertaining, Thank educational. You. Thank you. I- I'm so glad you agreed to speak with me. I am so grateful. Thank you so very much for having me on your show. I I really enjoyed this. I'm 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 looking forward to um to you know other discussions. Uh, hopefully when my next book come out, comes out. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. I'll be the first one to read it. Yay. <laughs> Aho. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Shut Your New Soul podcast. Please like and subscribe. And also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. As always, we hope you enjoyed.